If you would, please join me in prayer. God, we come before you just humbly submitting ourselves, recognizing the great work that you have done, that, Lord, you have put together from the beginning of time a masterful plan of salvation to redeem a people to yourself. And so, Lord, we pray we, your people, would be united in heart and mind. We pray, Lord, that we all would recognize the significance of the good news of Jesus Christ. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners through his death, burial, and resurrection. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be united not only in this place, but also amongst my fellow brothers who are preaching this morning across the city. I pray for my brother Sean DeMar in Decatur. I pray for my friend Alexander Wade up in North Huntsville. I pray for Paul Lamy here, Lord, in Huntsville, also as well at Grace Community, and, and all other pulpits, Lord, who are this moment, this hour, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that your gospel would be what prevails, that you, Lord, would be magnified and lifted high. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ Jesus alone. Amen. Well, I was asked last week, are you going to cover the resurrection narrative in Matthew chapter 28 on this coming Sunday? Well, I hated to disappoint them, but I don't think you really want me to cover seven chapters of Matthew in one sermon. <laughs> After all, I have six more days of the Holy Week to get through, but, but I want to take a different tack this morning by looking at Psalm 24. That was our Old Testament reading last week. At first glance, it might not seem like an Easter text, but I think with, with careful consideration, you might reconsider that. Last week, we covered the first day of Holy Week from Matthew 21. On that Sunday morning, Jesus instructed his disciples to acquire both a donkey and a colt that he had prearranged for the riding into Jerusalem. Then the Lord rode upon one of those animals and entered into the city of on Passover week through a throng of people that were crying out to him, Hosanna to the son of David, which means save us, son of David. He was being welcomed both as a savior and a king, and he demonstrated his kingly authority by marching into the temple to clear out those who were making a profit of the pilgrims coming to make their sacrifices. We saw last week that the religious authorities were indignant at this. They wanted Jesus to hush his disciples and hush the crowds. They obviously didn't believe that Jesus was worthy of such adulation, particularly on Passover week. Jesus would be a distraction from their authority on such an important event. And yet the crowds and, and even the children were caught up in the enthusiasm, crying out to him, save us, son of David, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet, judging by their reaction, seeing what was in their mind's eye, by Friday morning, this same crowd will be shouting a different cheer. They will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And even his closest disciples will, will flee from his presence on Thursday night when he is arrested. There was a certain level of understanding about Jesus that was obviously deficient. The Pharisees and the Sadducees recognized him as a threat to the status quo. And while he was a great miracle worker and a prophet, he was not the type of Messiah that the people were looking for. Nor did he meet the expectations of his own friends. They all had their own ideas about the Messiah. They each were anticipating something different. 
So far, we, we've seen the thinking and the motivation of these people based upon their actions. But the real question was what was going on inside the mind of the Lord Jesus? What was he thinking as he rode into Jerusalem on that Sunday of Passover week when, when lambs were being driven into the city to be sacrifices to atone for sin? What was his intentions? That's what I want to explore this morning. And Psalm 24 is a good text that provides a broad overview of the Lord's mission within these sections. Now, turn to Psalm 24 again in your Bibles. And as we read through this psalm, these three sections appear completely unrelated to one another. You have two verses about Yahweh's creation. Then you have four verses concerning the qualifications of who may appear before Yahweh. And then, curiously, you have four more verses about Yahweh entering some unspecified gates as the king of glory. The psalm is attributed to David. It has historical attestation with that it's always been a part of the Hebrew scriptures. But many have speculated as to why it is here. What was its purpose when the Hebrew people sang it? What, how did it fit within their liturgy? It's not at all clear. Some Jewish theologians speculate that, that David was inspired to write this psalm when he restored the Ark of the Covenant to the tabernacle after it had been captured by the Philistines. But while that's a possibility, it still doesn't quite fit the overall structure. David would have been pretty arrogant if he perceived himself to be the king of glory dancing before the Ark as it came into Jerusalem. I'm going to argue this morning that the only way we can understand this psalm is to see it in the light of Jesus Christ. I think David was anticipating this triumphal entry some 900 years previously. And it's only by seeing what our Lord did on the Holy Week, nearly 2,000 years ago from us, that we can explain this psalm. It will give us understanding of what Jesus was thinking as he marched through those gates. Therefore, we're going to look briefly at each of these three sections in the psalm, then we're going to take a brief moment to, to see if the New Testament can enlighten us to its meaning. And, and finally, we're going to conclude with answering the so what question. What difference does it make that the person that's spoken of in this psalm is Jesus? What should that mean for us today? So let's begin here with the first two verses, because they make a claim that should surprise no one, but, but I have found that there are many that have never considered this important point before. Verse 1 the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. In the Old Testament, whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters, it represents the four Hebrew letters for the covenantal name for God, Yahweh. Transliterated into English, God's name is I Am. It communicates that the God of the universe is self-existing apart from his creation. Everything that is and was and is to be is dependent upon him. He is in no way dependent upon his creation. When God first revealed his name to Moses, it was in response to the man's question, who shall I say sent me to deliver you from the Egyptians? The answer was to tell them, I am who I am. That name should be enough. Who is worthy of all praise? I am. Who is the great God of the universe? I am. Who is with us? I am. Is the Lord powerful enough to save us? I am. And we are told at the outset of this psalm that the earth belongs to Yahweh. 
not just the earth, but everything that is on it, all of its fullness, the seas, the forest, the animal kingdom, the crops of the ground, the atmosphere, all of it belongs to this great God. Paul quotes this verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 26, when the Corinthian church questioned if they could eat meat sacrificed to idols. Paul began his argument by acknowledging everything belongs to God, including the food that's on the table. All of it is his. And David adds in verse 1, just in case there might have been a distinction between plants and animals and human beings, those who dwell therein. Meaning all the people that live in the fullness of God owe their existence and loyalty to Yahweh. The problem is, we think that the world came into existence to serve our needs alone. We have a tendency to make ourselves the center of the universe as though God himself exists to serve humanity. But David reminds us that is not the case. Everything belongs to Yahweh, the great I am. And he tells us why in verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David is making a reference to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. That tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In ancient cultures, deep waters represented chaos. Water was unstable. You can't gain a footing in water. You can drown in it. You can become all-encompassed by it. And in this void, the voice of Yahweh spoke, let there be, and whatever he said came into being, providing an ordered existence. God's decree provided stability, order, an environment that would bring glory to him from his creation, a place where it could thrive. Everything belongs to Yahweh because he is the creator. That includes all the peoples of the earth. And that leads us here to the second section. We're, we're faced with a considerable dilemma here. David asks here in verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Other psalms, like Psalm 2 and Psalm 15, identify the hill of Yahweh as Jerusalem specifically the place where the tabernacle was first placed and, and later where the temple was built. The hill was the place that Yahweh had established for his people to meet and to commune with him. So the question David asks is, who can ascend this hill? Who can approach this holy place and stand before him? And that implies that not all are welcome there. There are some who are ineligible to come before the holy creator God. After all, as the sovereign of the universe, he can decide who can and who cannot come before him. He gets to stipulate the rules and the conditions. Verse 4 is the answer to the question of who may come into his presence. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And here is where the problem lies for us. God is perfect in every way. He is holy and he is set apart from his creation. And if he issues a command, it must be obeyed. Any disobedience is rebellion. And the Bible calls this rebellion sin. And all sin must be punished. Otherwise, God would not be just and he would cease to be perfect. And the description we have here of the one who can come before him is a person without sin, both in deed and thought. Only they are the ones eligible 
to approach this holy God. To have clean hands implies one who has never performed a sinful act. Their appendages are clean from such guilt. They, they have never stolen. They've never spoken a lie with their tongue nor slandered another. They've never committed a lustful act or indulged the flesh. They've never caused deliberate harm to another. And to add to this is the pure heart. In Hebrew, the heart is not just described as an internal organ, but the place of the human will, our, our thought life, where choices are made. A pure heart would not hate his or her neighbor. It would not have blasphemous thoughts. It would always place the glory of the creator greater than the glory for self-glory. Furthermore, the clean hands and the pure heart of a person has not lifted their soul to falsehood nor sworn deceitfully. They live a life of integrity in the ways of the Lord God. Their allegiance has always been to Yahweh. They've never gone after a false idol like money or wealth or fame or made a relationship to another human being greater than Yahweh. They have always served the truth of the Lord, never deviating from it. They've always kept their promises. If a person who did not have clean hands, a pure heart, who gave their soul to falsehood or swore deceitfully approached Yahweh, then they should expect nothing but punishment and condemnation for violating his commands. Which of us could say this describes us? But for the one who does have clean hands and a pure heart, they can expect an amazing reward here. Look at this in verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Blessing here means God's favor. Righteousness in this sense means a right standing before God. It indicates a position of complete friendship with no sin to mar the relationship. And this verse surprisingly says that Yahweh himself will provide his own righteousness coming from his salvation to this one that draws near. And David further states in verse 6, this is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now, we need to be careful here and not think that David is referring to his current generation as though he's speaking about his contemporaries. The ESV kind of gains the meaning when it says, such is the generation. It is the generation, or could be translated as the great age of when people approach Yahweh with clean hands and pure hearts who have received his blessing and righteousness. It will be a generation that deliberately seeks the face of Yahweh, the God of Jacob. David is anticipating an age where there will be a generation of God's people who will be allowed into Yahweh's presence as though they are without sin. They will approach him with no fear whatsoever. So how can that be? How can someone obtain clean hands and a pure heart if they're already marred by sin? And then we have this amazing final section here. It seems to be unrelated to what precedes it. It describes the possession here of a monarch. The monarch enters some gateway. And heads here are not human heads, by the way, but the top of the city gate that barred the two gates together here. The inhabitants of this city are crying out, let the bar be removed and, and the gates be opened wide for the king to enter in. In your translation, it describes the gate as ancient doors. Now, that might be correct, but the Hebrew word olam here can also mean eternal or everlasting Doors that have always stood. 
it might be inferred that the welcoming of this king is not just the gates of Jerusalem, but into the gates of heaven, to the very place of God. Both situations might be implied. The inhabitants are crying out, let him in, let him in. And then they identify him as the king of glory. The same exact refrain is sung in verse 9. Now, if you were a stranger to this new city, you might ask, well, who is that? Who is this king of glory? That is what verse 8 and 10 do. They, they ask, who is this? What is this king's identity? And David's response is shocking. It is no mere man. It is the Lord God himself. Remember, whenever we see the word Lord in all capital letters, it represents God's covenant name. David's reply to the question, who is this king of glory, is, I am strong and mighty. I am mighty in battle. I am enters the gates to defeat his enemies in the walls. The question is asked again in verse 10, who is this king of glory? I am of the heavenly host or heavenly armies. He is the king of glory. There is no doubt this is God himself. This is not David dancing before the Ark of the Covenant. This is Yahweh, the conquering king, whom the inhabitants welcome here. So to summarize the psalm, all of creation is accountable to Yahweh, the sovereign of the universe. Those who have clean hands and a pure heart may come into the place of meeting with Yahweh and receive his blessing and righteousness. And finally, a city cries aloud to open the gates of their city that they may welcome the king of glory who is a manifestation of the God of the universe. So in Matthew 21, as we consider Jesus entering into Jerusalem in what is called his triumphal entry, does the New Testament give us any indication of what is happening? What is Jesus thinking as he rides into the city on a colt? In the previous chapter, chapter 20, Jesus had already predict, predicted, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, that doesn't sound very glorious on first thought. He knew that when he got to Jerusalem, there would be suffering and death involved, but he also knew that he would be raised from the dead. So we know Jesus is entering Jerusalem in order to accomplish some sort of mission. So is Jesus some mere man, a, a prophet? Well, the author of Hebrews reveals that Christ's work in Hebrews chapter 9 is what, what we need to understand here. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. You'll find this on page 1006 of your pew Bible. This is important. I really want to ask, if you will, to lay eyes on this text. And as you turn there, let me prepare you by giving you a brief synopsis of what you can anticipate here. The writer of the Hebrews is revealing that the tabernacle and temple, the place of meeting God and making restitution to him, were just shadows or, or copies of better things to come. Think symbols or, or types here. Instead of a mortal high priest who always was contaminated with sin, we needed a perfect high priest to offer a sacrifice to God with the purpose to cleanse us from sinful hands and sinful hearts. 
And instead of the blood of a mere animal, we needed the blood of a perfect sacrifice that would atone for all of our sin before a holy God. We needed better mediation than a flawed temple, a flawed high priest, and flawed sacrifices. So let's pick this up at verse 11. It tells us what Jesus intended to do as he rode into Jerusalem that Passover week. Here. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer, a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore he, meaning Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will, and here we need to think legal will here, not choice, not man's choice, but a legal document. For where, is, for where there is a will involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. That's earthly things. But, but get this. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now look at this. It's not just Jerusalem that Jesus strolled through the gates, but into the very presence of God. Verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Whew. This is good. You can hear it as he enters, can't you? Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O everlasting doors. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Who is this king of glory? It is God himself, Jesus, the perfect God-man, entered into the presence of God with clean hands and pure heart. He entered for us. He obtained the righteousness of God that can be given to us by faith. As Paul said, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And the writer of the Hebrews warns here in verse 27, and just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. 
When Jesus appears the next time, our resurrected king does not come to save us from sin. That has already been dealt with. But to save us from the judgment to come upon this sin-sick world. Our glorious king entered into the courts of heaven to make war on death and make restitution for our sins. Can he do it? Can he defeat death? Of course he can. Because his resurrection proved that his mission was accomplished. He is the first fruit of all who come to him by faith. Can he defeat sin and death? Of course he can. He is the Lord, strong and mighty. He is the Lord of hosts. Almighty God is he. And he will prove it on the first day of the week, exactly one, way, one week from the day of his triumphal entry, when he is raised from the dead. Christ Jesus, raised in power, resurrected as we will be when he comes. So we need to think here about the so what question that I posed earlier. Our psalm tells us that all of creation is accountable to God, and only those who approach him in purity will be allowed into his presence. That means there will be some who never enter into the eternal presence of God. They will be refused entry because of unclean hands and unclean hearts. They will be apart from God forever. And the Bible refers to that alternative place as hell and endless torment. But what we just read in Hebrews, there is a means by which we can enter into God's presence with clean hands and pure hearts. In fact, we can become children of God, co-heirs with Christ. We do so by placing our absolute belief that Jesus accomplished the Father's mission on our behalf. That means you must place your faith in the death of Christ, that his blood alone can wash away your rebellious sin against God and make you whole and clean. You must believe that nothing else can save you. No amount of good works, no holy days of obligation, no amount of bothering with God. If you give me this, then I will do that. No amount of meditation or giving money or just assuming that God is going to let your sin slide. God has provided only one way through his son, and you must believe in that. But you must not only believe in his death, but you also have to believe in his resurrection. The resurrection proves that the mission was completed. Death and sin are defeated forevermore, and God approves. We celebrate the resurrection this morning on the first day of the week primarily for this reason, mission accomplished. Our king just brought us eternal hope. Because the transaction of our sin for his righteousness is proven in the resurrection, Jesus proves that there is life for us after death. Jesus faced alone what we could never face so that we will never face death alone. This is our hope in life and death. I have a friend who battled breast cancer last year with with chemo and radical surgery. And she was happy to report at the end of last year that, that she was in remission. But two weeks ago, she learned that her cancer has returned. Prognosis does not look good. Treatment at this point is only going to prolong her life for up to two years. She is only 31 years old. 
she and her husband have some difficult choices ahead of them. So what hope can I offer them? Jesus Christ, the King of glory. Because Jesus faced death alone, they do not have to face this moment alone. She will have victory over death. The enmity between God and man has been removed by Jesus. Jesus has paid the debt, and now God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Because it is God who justifies. And here's the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us right now. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're just regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friend and her husband can face down death in full assurance that Jesus has beaten death. It's done. It's because of the resurrection. One of the things that I love about this song, I just love it. At the end of it, we don't hear the people, close the gates behind them. They don't have to close it. The enemy has been defeated, and the way is open forevermore. But as part of the right standing and the blessing that we receive from God, we who are alive, We know that this world is not all there is. Our Jesus is coming back to rescue us from sickness, from our addictions, from war, from madness, from from crime, from injustice, from dictators, from ourselves, from the death of the body. On that day, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we all who are alive will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Think of it. What a glorious day. When our king returns, once again, you will see your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, your child, your husband, your wife, all who are in Christ will be reunited. What a celebration. And we have proof it will happen because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. One final tidbit from Psalm 24 that I discovered in my studies. The, the heading in your Bible say, a psalm of David. And it should, because it comes directly from the Hebrew. But the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says something slightly different. It was produced some 700 years after David wrote these original words. Remember, no one knew the purpose of Psalm 24. But listen to this. The heading in this later Greek translation says... A psalm of David 
on the first day of the week. That implies that this psalm was typically sung on Sundays. Did David anticipate Resurrection Sunday? That Christian worship would be on the first day of the week and we would all desire to sing, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up everlasting doors that the King of glory may come in. We can only speculate. So brothers and sisters, and friends who do not know the Lord, I ask this day, lift up the heads of the gates in your own hearts. Open the gates of your souls that the King of glory may come in. Cry out, Hosanna. Save us. Cry that out to him, because only he can. If you ask, can he save? He will respond, I am strong and mighty. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the King of glory. My greatest desire for you on this day is that you would recognize the poverty of your own souls with sinfulness against a holy God. And yet you would also see the beauty that this holy God loves you, that he's made a way for you to come to him through his only son. And that today, on this day, this would be the moment that, that you place your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that you would own that for yourself and say, I can't do this. Only Jesus can make me right with you. You may ask, well, how do I know? It, 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 you know, what you're saying is kind of making sense to me. How do I know? This is how you'll know. Because you will desire in your heart. You'll know. You'll have this desire in your heart to make him Lord of your life. You'll have a desire in your heart to live a way that shows that your faith is upon him. Not in your own faith, but your faith is in him. That's an important distinction. A lot of people think it must be based on the quality of my faith. No, it's based on what you believe about him. And you will know he took care of it all. Even when you mess up, you can go back to him. He took care of it all. That your faith and dependence is upon him. Because when the Bible talks about the opposite of faith, it never describes the opposite of faith as unbelief. It describes it as disobedience, willful disobedience that you don't believe. So this day, my desire for you is avail yourself of this beautiful salvation that Jesus Christ has accomplished for you. Let's pray. Lord, you are creator God. All things belong to you. You are holy and you are distinct apart from your creation. And Lord, it is we who have marred that creation. We are the ones that have brought sin. We are the ones that have brought disobedience, even though everything you did for us was good. And yet, even in our own sinful thoughts and rebellion, Lord, we have this tendency to think that you are always against us. But Lord, all we have to do is to look and see the beautiful act of you sending your son, Jesus, into the world. 
to live a sinless life, Lord, that we could not live, to become this perfect sacrifice, to be placed upon the cross, and that all the wrath that we deserved should be poured out upon him so that justice might be satisfied. Lord, when we look at the cross, how can we think that you are against us? Lord, please don't let our arrogant and belligerent hearts prevent us from accepting your salvation and seeing it as the only way. We pray, Lord, that we would behold this marvelous plan that you have put into place for us and that, Lord, we would believe and we would be in heart and we would be joyful and we would have a desire to serve you and our faith would be in what Christ has done. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you. May we know this is all true because Jesus has been risen from the dead. May that be our hope this morning. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.